What's Yom Kippur all about? It's about telling the truth. Pilate asked, What is truth? Is it going to church on Sunday and having a sun disc wafer and a thimble of wine? Is that what it's about? Is it dressing up in Jewish ritual wear and loving the state of Israel? Is that what it's about? Is it voting for the Republicans, the Democrats or being an independent? Is it fasting on Yom Kippur? Is that what makes us pleasing to Yahweh? I want a sandwich, a chicken sandwich. That's what belongs in a sandwich, a chicken. But hey, I guess I'm the crazy one for thinking that on Yom Kippur. Right? Wrong. Look what these fellas are up to on Yom Kippur. Is this right? Israel is coming to a virtual standstill as Jews mark the beginning of Yom Kippur, also known as the Day of Atonement. Ultra-Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem performed the traditional kaparot ritual, swinging chickens above each other's heads in order to transfer the year's sins to the animals. The chickens are then sacrificed in a ritual slaughter before being eaten. Look to Judaism as an example of the faith. Can we turn down the audio a little bit? But the, the reality is... So many of us have been misguided and mis misunderstood by what's going on out there. And I want to try and bring some clarity to what Yom Kippur is all about today. Because it's certainly not about that. Because nowhere in the scripture does it say that a blood of a chicken covers you for sin. Nowhere. So where does this idea even come from? Nowhere at all. You see, men are trying to make up traditions on this day because they don't understand what it's truly about. We haven't had a standing temple in 2,000 years. So swinging a chicken, chicken around your head is, 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 is good enough? No, it's not. So what is the truth? Is it about supporting U.S. culture? That's what many people would say in religious society today. Is it about supporting the British culture and the monarchy? Well, many people who cross over and leave mainstream Christian dogma get very excited about the state of Israel and everything Israel. Well, is it about supporting the state of Israel? Because they certainly don't believe and support you in your faith. Let's have a look at this. You see, that was on Israeli national TV, a stripper mockingly crucifying a monkey called Yeshu, because they won't even use his name. That's supported on national Israeli TV. You see, the reality is they'll openly mock you about your faith. And you have many people that would say, well, they're Christian Zionists and excited about the state of Israel. But the reality is it's not a Zionist state. It's a Jewish state. Because you still can't move there if you're a Christian Zionist because you're the wrong race. 
and the wrong religion. So it's not about Zionists. It's about what you see there is the openly mocking of people who believe in Yeshua. Openly. So should we support that kind of regime? I mean, can you imagine a comedy sketch in America portraying hook-nosed Jews marching to gas chambers? Can you imagine that on American TV? It would never happen. And neither should it happen. But you see, what it is, is this double standard and people being deceived by the religions and the traditions of men. Should we be fleeing to the promised land? Or should we right now be holing up in our holy land? Because Yeshua said that we are to do what? Truly Yom Kippur is about cleaning the inside, the inside of the cup. It's not all the outward, but it's the inward. So what does that really look like? In fact, we have a, something to show you from, this happened several years ago, that 10,000 or so rabbis in New York, they came together to vocalize what they believe is happening in the world. And I think we may even have a clip for you with that. the truth because 10,000 rabbis came together in New York City and I want to quote from their rally this is what they said already for 65 years now they're speaking about the state of Israel and this is what 10,000 rabbis at their their um, their group when they came together this is what they said Already for 65 years, those blasphemers of God has forcefully ruled over the Holy Land. They have built cities and paved roads, but the city of God is degraded to the uttermost. The uttermost depths of the Holy Land have been degraded. It's a rebellion against God's kingdom. They rebelled against God who imposed upon us severe oaths not to take over the land of Israel before the coming of Mashiach. For all these years, religious Jews have been hurting and bleeding over the holiest desecration of the holiest sites in the world. There is no other army in the world as immoral as the Israeli army, they go on to say. This impure army from the state of Israel was founded and has spilled so much blood and filth into the world. The Zionists want to take the voice of Jacob, those studying Torah in the hall of study, and make them into the hands of Esau, who lives only by the sword to kill and degrade. They go on to say, 
During World War I, the Zionist Jews have tricked religious Jews the world over out of billions, sought to take over the starving peasant leadership who inhabited the land for generations. Notably, the Holy Chief Rabbi of Jerusalem, Yosef Chaim Sonnefield, and the other great leaders of the community. They all fought a holy battle against the Zionists. They stated, we'd rather die of hunger than submit to you heretics. They go on to say, we have to proclaim a struggle against the Zionists' Amalek. We say to the Zionists, we have no connection with you. We don't need you. The entire world, Jewry, stands behind the battle against the Zionists and we will do everything in our power to annul the evil decree. All evil will vanish like smoke when you, O Yahweh, remove the evil government from the land. You see, this isn't communicated to the American people. That there's a whole group of religious Judahites out there that believe in the Holy Torah that say what's going on in the Middle East is a desecration and an abomination and that the Holy Chief Rabbi of Jerusalem back in the late 30s, he and his holy people, they warred against the heretics that were coming in from Europe after the Holocaust to set up a new world Zionist order. 10,000 rabbis came together, 10,000 to speak against what's going on. You see, but we don't hear about that. We don't hear about that. We don't hear about that. Choke on some more truth on Yom Kippur. Avraham wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a Jew. He was the first Hebrew, one who Chavah crossed over from one soil and put roots down in a better soil and produced a crop. That's what we're to do. We're to cross over from pagan soil over to the good soil of Yahweh and produce a crop, which are the Shabbats and the feasts of Yahweh. But we're not to do them according to Zionist conspiracy, religious Talmudic conspiracy, or Christian mainstream dogma. We're to do it according to the Kadosh, holy word of Yahweh. So what does that look like? What does that look like? Because we are all on a journey. I used to be a heathen. Then I was a born again Christian on fire out there preaching on the streets. And then I got into the Torah and I became highly, highly rabbinical. And now Yahweh has shown me that there is the right dividing point, Second Timothy, and it's understanding the Malkitzedic royal law through the Malkitzedic high priest. And that is what Yahweh is calling this generation. But I must take my experiences, my mistakes that I've made, made and try and help those of you that are also on this journey as we journey together. Because we can help one another through our life experiences. Because we are the first people in over 2,000 years that hold the testimony of Yeshua as Messiah. And keep the Shabbat feasts and dietary requirements of Yahweh. But we can't say that we understand what walking out Torah looks like. 
Because we haven't got people to lead us. We only have him and the Ruach HaKodesh and his holy word. So we need to question everything. Should we be swinging chickens around our heads and thinking that blood covers us on Yom Kippur? Should we be fasting? There's nothing wrong with fasting. But should we say it's a commandment of Yahweh on Yom Kippur? There's nothing wrong with fasting on Yom Kippur. Nothing at all. But when we turn around and say it's a commandment of Yahweh that we fast on Yom Kippur, then we are adding to the word of Yahweh. There is nothing wrong with wearing ritual holy wear. But when we turn around and tell a brother that it's a commandment of Yahweh that we wear it, then we have some problems. We need to rightly discern between the word of Yahweh and the traditions of men. So I want to give you some history today and some more truth. We have to understand that Ashkenaz, Ashkenaz was a son of who? Ashkenaz was not a son of Shem. He was a son of Japheth. Was Ashkenaz a Shemite? No, he was not. He was a Japhethite. So the Ashkenaz, are they Semitic people? Use your Bible. No, they are from Japheth. They are not Shemitic. Let's understand that. Let's go back and read the scripture. The Khazars, they converted to Judaism in the 7th century. They were a Turkic people, and that is where the Ashkenans come from, the Khazars, from the Turkic tribe. So the Ashkenans are actually Khazarian, a non-Semitic Turkic people who sacrificed the ethnic Jews at the Zionist altar of the Holocaust in order to do what? In order... Just like these 10,000 rabbis recognize that we've just shown you a clip from, in order to do what? To sway public opinion for the formation of a Zionist state in Palestine after the failure of the Uganda program. After the failure of the Uganda program, they had to look for some new real estate and it coincided with public opinion after the Holocaust and they jumped on it. But initially, the Uganda program was what was the hot topic at the beginning of the 20th century. You see, today there is much racism and hatred because of some events that have taken Um, place in our time. The Palestinians are such a oppressed and racially targeted group and we don't even understand who they truly are. Because the Palestinians are in fact the true Felhalim. The term is Felhalim. It means Jewish peasant farmers that originally inhabited the land and stayed there since the destruction of the temple in 70 of the common era. And this isn't my opinion. This is actually David Ben-Gurion's opinion, the words out of his mouth. And before he was prime minister of Israel, many of you don't realize, he was a historian. And when he came to the land, he said that the Palestinians were the Fehalim, the migrant Jews 
that had grabbed hold of the land stayed there as poor peasant farmers for centuries. But then when Muhammad and Saladin moved in, they could not afford the jihad tax. So they were either going to have to give up the land or the other option was what? Convert to Islam. They weren't threatened by the sword as some people misguidingly speak. They were never threatened by the sword of Islam. They coexisted, except they couldn't afford to pay the jihad's tax. So they converted to Islam, so they wouldn't have to pay the tax. This is history. And this was known by David Ben-Gurion, the first leader of the state of Israel. You see, there has been... No historical investigation, no historical research done, done, excuse me, on the forceful expulsion of the Jewish population by the Romans. The Romans, they didn't go and expel a people. What did the Romans do? They took the treasures, they plundered the treasures, the Arch of Titus, case in point. They kept the people in the land and they brought in prefects to guard and monitor and tax the people. But they didn't take the Jews captive. There were already 30,000 or 40,000 Jews living in Rome at the time of Yeshua by choice. They stayed in the land. You see, the Romans never deported entire peoples. The fact that 60 years after the destruction of the Second Temple, there was a major Jewish uprising. It was called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. It shows and demonstrates that there were still many, many Jews in the land. This proves that there was a large Jewish presence in the Holy Land in that time. Now, in 1918... Historians David Ben-Gurion, who was going to be the future prime minister, and Yitzhak Ben-Zavi, who was the future president of the state of Israel, this is what they wrote. Listen to this. To argue after the conquest of Jerusalem by Titus and the failure of the Bar Kokhba revolt, Jews altogether ceased to cultivate the land of Israel, is to demonstrate complete ignorance in the history and the contemporary literature of Israel. The Jewish farmer, listen, listen to this. This is the future prime minister and the future president of the state of Israel. The Jewish farmer like any other farmer, was not easily torn from his soil, which had been watered by his sweat and the sweat of his forebearers. Despite the repression and suffering, the rural population remains unchanged. The Fehalim farmers are descendants of the ancient Jews. End quote. What are you going to do with that? What happened? There was a massacre in Hebron. That's what happened. And that changed the Zionist national narrative. And that's the narrative that we still listen to today that's put out by CNN, MSNBC, and all of those media whores. But the truth is, before the Hebron massacre, the future president and prime minister were going to bring all of those inhabitants and bring them into the Israeli national 
community. But after Hebron, there was no way that they would be able to assimilate the population. So they changed the narrative. And the history is not told. The truth isn't told because it's buried under 65 years of propaganda and lies. So let's recap. The Ashkenazi Jews are not the natural Jews, the descendants of Shem. They're Khazars. Yet the Palestinians are the Fehalim, the natural Jewish descendants in the land. What is up is down. What is black is white. And Yahweh's people are being lied to by this world that we live in. And we need to break through to the truth on Yom Kippur because we are coming into a new age of Yahweh waking up his people through the truth of the Malkitzedic priesthood and the order of his son. But it has to be a people that are bold and courageous to question the national narrative, the global new world order narrative. Let me continue, because I am going to get into the scriptures about Yom Kippur. But before, I want to just open up and show you just how much we have been lied to. Because Yom Kippur is all about truth. Seeking the truth of Yahweh. So the Palestinian paradigm shift is thus. The ancient Jewish peasants converted to Islam for material reasons to avoid paying the Jahiz tax. The fact that they clung to the soil that they tilled shows that they remained loyal to their very homeland. Initially, the future prime minister and president of the state of Israel were integrationist, listen, they were integrationist Zionist thinkers, motivated to bring about an ethnocentric future. What does that mean? They wanted to integrate the inhabitants of the land that were already there, the Palestinians. Yet after Hebron, they realized, after the Hebron massacre, they realized that they were going to have a huge problem integrating these people because there had just been a war and a massacre. And the the Zionists from Europe, the Ashkenazi, would not accept integration after the massacre. So they changed the national narrative. And now they mock anybody who believes in Yeshua. They will not let you speak about Yeshua openly, and they mock you on national television. They swing chickens around their head thinking the blood of chickens will cover the sins. And I'm the fool for eating a chicken sandwich on Yom Kippur? No. It's total foolery to be absolutely sidelined by these liars and propagandists. And we need to break through the truth to get where Yahweh is trying to take his people Because this world is on the very, very precipice of exploding. And if you don't realize that with what's going on with Syria and Iran, and if you're going to be a part of that, then you will be eaten up by it. You have got to start waking up 
to what's going on in this global community that we live in. And that Yahweh's people have to stand up for truth and we have to be like Yehoshua and Caleb. We have to be like Pincus. We have to stand up and we have to be zealous for the word of Yahweh. And most importantly, we have to be zealous for Moshiach Yeshua. And nothing takes precedence over him. Yom Kippur doesn't take precedence over Yeshua. The Feast of Tabernacles doesn't take precedence over Yeshua. Shabbat doesn't take precedence over Yeshua. Because Yeshua is all and all, which everything that Yahweh says, it ultimately culminates in the Malkitzedic Yeshua. And that is what the writer of the book of Hebrews clearly communicates to us. So when we're doing the holy rituals of Yahweh, when we're keeping the holy word of Yahweh, we must remember the preeminence of the Mashiach in all and everything that we do. And I, for many years, didn't. I put my religious rituals, my religious thoughts before Yeshua, because I thought it was about keeping the commandments, but ultimately, it's the commandments that keep me. Ultimately, it is. It truly is. I mean, I am just jazzed up today. Let me go back to this Palestinian paradigm shift. You see, David Ben-Gurion and Yitzhak Ben-Zavi, they believed, because they were initially integrationist Zionist thinkers, and they were motivated to bring about an ethnocentric future, they believed the two populations had to be reunited. They believed an inhabitant of Hebron was closer in origin to the ancient Hebrews than the majority across the world that called themselves Ashkenazi Jews. It was only the massacre in Hebron and the widespread Arab revolt of 1936 to 1939 that took the wind out of the sails of integration back into the fold of Israel. And it collapsed. From this moment on, the descendants of Jewish peasantry vanishes from the Jewish Zionist national consciousness and it isn't taught in schools, in their history at all. It disappears. In 1939, it disappears from the national consciousness. Just gone. History is revised now to the Fehalim are now revised to be Arabian immigrants who came in the 19th century to an almost empty land as the Zionist economy of the 20th century developed it, attracted a more non-Jewish laborers. That's what they say. And that is a lie. It's not true. Historically, It is not true. And you only have to go back 150 years and see it's not true. But people don't. We've got a whole society now that doesn't go back before 2001. They accept all of these new government agencies like Homeland Security. They accept the Patriot Act because their history doesn't even go back before 2001. When the world changed. And we'll get into that. We have to understand that the Romans did not forcibly deport the Jews from their homeland. And there was no voluntary return to it. 
Only when the borders of the United States, Britain, Babylon, and Europe were closed after the Holocaust did some Jews return to mandatory Palestine. So again, I ask you on Yom Kippur, what is truth? What if society as a whole could pinpoint a time in history where a huge fraud, a conspiracy, had been perpetrated upon humanity and then turn around and use that very fraud as a litmus test to determine whether its leaders were working to advance the corrupt agenda of that system or whether its leaders had awakened to lead humanity into the millennium of new discovery, free from the tyranny that's advanced through the very conspiracy event that mainstream society has accepted and fears to question. How about if we turn a conspiracy around on its head and we use that very conspiracy as a litmus test to test our leaders, both political and religious, to see what side they're on. And whoever supports the propaganda, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them in your, in your universities. Don't listen to them in your churches. Don't listen to them in your synagogues. Whatever politicians support that conspiracy, don't listen to them. Don't vote for them. You'll have a whole awakening of society when you turn that conspiracy around on its head and you use it as a litmus test to see who is supporting the globalist new world order and who is actually supporting Truth, real truth. And of course, that time in history, that time in history where a huge fraud, a conspiracy has been perpetrated upon humanity is none other, of course, than what? 9-11. Because that event, more than any other in the history of mankind, any other in the history of mankind, advance the laws, agenda, and systematic trampling of humanity under the feet of tyranny. More than Nero, more than Genghis Khan, and more than Mao and Stalin, and Hitler combined. Now, I know I started this teaching with a chicken hat on, But I am not going to give you any weird and fanciful ideas of what I think did or didn't happen on 9-11. What I want to do is to remind you of the recorded facts that stand up under weight and measure in a court of law. And then you... You weigh the evidence and you draw your own conclusions. Okay? You weigh the evidence of facts that I'm going to present that can stand up in a court of law. Then you weigh the evidence and then you decide where you stand. Some facts for you. The Taliban agreed to hand over Osama bin Laden to the West if the West 
agreed to follow due process of law and provide evidence. That's a fact. The FBI said there is no hard evidence to tie Osama bin Laden to 9-11. That's the FBI. Eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts and major news networks reported secondary explosions along with radio communication of emergency response teams within the Twin Towers. On their radios, they confirmed that they heard secondary explosions. This was reported by all the major news networks on 9-12. But subsequently, it disappeared from the collective narrative once the 19 Saudi story was trotted out before the world, even though there was zero evidence that would stand up in a court of law supporting that conspiracy theory. Unless, of course, you believe that miraculously amongst all of that jet fuel, all of that fire, millions and millions of tons of debris, that suddenly two passports landed on the street and were handed to New York Police Department. Wow. What a coincidence. Then the flight that vaporized in a field with no debris Except, I mean, not even a fuselage, not even a seat, not even a black box. But guess what? There was an Islamic headscarf and a passport. Fancy the chances of that. So we get the 19 Saudi story trotted out before the world, even though there was zero evidence. Unless you find the three passports that miraculously survived a fireball, a thousand foot freefall amid millions of tons of debris to land in the lap of federal investigators within eight hours. Miraculous. The World Trade Centers were a federal crime scene, were they not? That's a crime scene, right? Well, if it was a crime scene, then the question you must ask is, why was the evidence shipped off under darkness to be destroyed in China? It was a crime scene for crying out loud. This is a legitimate question that demands an answer. Let's talk about the planes. There was multiple eyewitness and video footage showing grey planes with no windows. No insignia. No flight markers of identification. These were military-looking planes according to video footage and eyewitness accounts. With grey box-like forms under the fuselage identified and verified by military flight analysis. Flight 93 that plowed into the field. No wreckage whatsoever. Vaporized. 
vaporized. No debris, except again, two passports and a Muslim headscarf and a prayer book. But there were drills going on on 9-11, various drills going on all over the land. One of those drills was called Operation Vigilant Guardian. And that very day sent NORAD into total confusion because they didn't know whether this was a real legitimate hijacking because that day they were practicing what to do when planes were hijacked. So they weren't sure, so that their planes were sent out all over the nation and they had all of these different scenarios going on. They weren't able to respond because they didn't know. The question you have to ask is, is that a coincidence? Then you see, what about the security at these airports? It was an Israeli security firm that was contracted at all three airports that the planes departed from. It was an Israeli security firm that had locked up the elevators within the World Trade Center for months prior ahead of time. And if you were going to take a building down, according to demolitions experts, you have to, first of all, cut the elevator cords and set explosions within the elevators because that's the weak spots. Of course, you wouldn't have one shaft going all the way up the thousand-foot structure. That's why they were separated. But you would have to deal with those first. Isn't it interesting that there was an Israeli security company that was in charge of the World Trade Centers and that they were doing elevator modernization for the months prior to 9-11, which shut down various segments for months at a time so that it could be mysteriously worked upon. And it was an Israeli security firm that was monitoring that. These are all facts. This isn't speculation. This is all documented and can stand up in a court of law. But it is all missing from the 9-11 commission, which, of course, is commonly called the 9-11 omission. See, people don't realize that those twin towers, they were full and full of tens of thousands of tons of what? Asbestos. Asbestos. In fact, it would have cost tens of billions of dollars to upgrade the twin towers. Six weeks before 9-11, the Jew, Larry Silverstein, purchased the antiquated, partially empty hazmat zone and took out a whopping 3.5 billion insurance on it. Do you know how much he paid for them? 15 million. So he got 15 million out of pocket and a 3.5 billion insurance. And then Larry, he pulled, he used this demolition term, he pulled Building 7. You realize that Building 7 wasn't hit by an aeroplane. So if you want to question anything, you have to question, why did Building 7 go down? In what looks like, according to demolition experts on testimony as a, a controlled demolition, why did Building 7 go down? It wasn't hit by airplanes. 
And why did Larry say that he was going to pull Building 7? Well, when he was examined and asked that question, he said, oh, I meant we were going to pull the firefighters out. But there were no firefighters in the building at the time, and he knew it. They had come out hours upon hours earlier. He used this term. What was, what was in Building 7? Do you remember Enron? That company? They had swindled California out of $70 billion. $70 billion. Do you know where Enron, the investigation and everything with Enron was? Just so happened to be in Building 7. Building 7 isn't even mentioned in the 9-11 commission report. Why not? Very important. A building just disappeared. But the classic is the BBC. You see, the BBC, they get their reporter, Jane Stanley. You've got to see this. It's just classic. Jane Stanley, the BBC reporter, is standing in front of Building 7, reporting that Building 7 has collapsed. And it's standing right before her. It wasn't until 20 minutes later that it collapsed. You see, she jumped the gun. Because the BBC, MSNBC, who owns all of these? None other than the Zionists. 20 minutes premature was her report. You see, Larry Silverstein, he obtained the lease on the World Trade Centers for 15 million, and he got a $7 billion return in six weeks. That's some good money. You shell out 15 million in six weeks, you're going to get 7 billion back. And guess what? He removed the $10 billion asbestos problem within a few hours, didn't he? Within a few hours. You see, two buildings were hit with planes, yet three buildings go down. And in what physicist Stephen E. Jones, architect Richard Gage, and engineer Jim Hoffman argue, that the aircraft impacts and the resulting fires could not have weakened the building sufficiently to initiate a catastrophic collapse. They go on to say, the buildings would not have collapsed completely, nor at the speeds that they did, without additional factors weakening the structures. Now, in the article, Active thermitic material discovered in dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center catastrophe, which appeared in the Open Chemicals Physics Journal. Authors Niels Harrett of the University of Copenhagen's Department of Chemistry, Jeffrey Farah of Brigham Young University's Department of Physics and Astronomy, and Stephen E. Jones and others state that thermite and nanothermite composites in the dust and debris were found following the collapse of all three buildings. Well, what does that mean? Well, they concluded that this was proof that explosives brought down the buildings. The article contained no scientific rebuttal And the editor-in-chief of the publication subsequently resigned 
and then later disappeared. Now, in 2005, the Windsor Hotel in Madrid, Spain, just like the World Trade Centers, a steel skeleton building, it burnt for 23 hours. Not two hours, not less than two hours. It burnt for 23 hours, a steel skeleton building. And do you know what happened? Floors collapsed. Concrete collapsed. But what remained was a steel skeleton. 23 hours! Yet, less than two hours of burning, and we have a controlled freefall into its own footprint of three buildings, two buildings, and then building seven later on in the day. And that building wasn't even on fire. I mean, it had some fire, but the whole building wasn't. None of the buildings were all on fire. The Windsor Hotel in 2005 shows us what happens to steel structure buildings when they burn with excessive heat for hours on end. The steel skeleton remains. What about the five dancing Israelis? There were five dancing Israelis that were arrested by the New York Police Department. They were set up and dancing. They were set up with cameras on top of a parking structure in the flight path of the incoming planes. That shows you what? Prior knowledge. When they were put on Israeli national TV, this is what they said. Quote, our purpose was to document the event, unquote. That's a fact. So what does that show you? If somebody says, well, what were you doing on top of a building prior to the planes coming in? And then you answer, quote, our purpose was to document the event. What does that demonstrate in a court of law? That you had prior bloody knowledge. Prior knowledge, proof of prior knowledge recorded and documented by the New York Police Department. They are arrested and then they are subsequently released because dual national Israeli and American politicians demand their release. Who are their allegiance to? The United States of America or Israel? Members of APAC, who are their allegiance to? The United States of America or Israel? See, these are questions that must be asked, demand to have answers if we're going to get past this militarized global conspiracy that is enslaving humanity. It's the Nicolaitan pyramid, turn over your dollar bill, and you and I are the slaves at the bottom, and they are the enlightened, illuminated ones on the top, so they think. But Yahweh is sick of this. His people are sick of it, and you should be sick of it. If we are going to be walking in the truth, we have to question everything because we live in a governmental, religious, and financially corrupted system. 
And guess what? It's going to collapse. And then the millennium is going to come and Yahweh's people will rule and reign. But it will not happen unless you and I wake up and become the foot soldiers for the righteous army of Yahweh. I think we have some footage. Because there were two vans that were actually stopped on 9-11. And they were packed full of explosives. One was on the George Washington Bridge of the Holland Tunnel. And this is all documented by the NYPD. And it was reported by the major news networks on 9-11 and 9-12. But again, it disappears from the national collective narrative. Now, on one of these white vans, this is insane. This is absolutely insane. One of these white vans, it had a mural on the side of a drone aircraft flying into the New York skyline. Show it. Spencer, I got a message on that uh, plane. It's, it's, a, it's a big truck with a mural painted of, a, of an airplane diving into New York City and exploding. You know what's in the truck? The truck is in between 6th and 7th on King Street. I said for us, any issue in the bomb squad, they're full with King. That was picked up by NYPD NYPD on 9-11. Two vans chocked full of explosives picked up. The occupants were, were arrested and then they were later released. They were Israeli nationals. Israeli nationals, again, suspected of being Mossad, who were subsequently arrested, like I said, And then after intervention from dual national, high-ranking Israeli politicians, they were released. And then it disappears from the national narrative after 9-12. You heard about it on 9-11? You heard about it on 9-12? Disappears. Disappears. Two trucks full of explosives, one with a mural of a plane flying into a building. You've seen it right there. I think that's quite important, don't you? Who was the president at the time? George Bush. And many Bible-believing Christians and good people voted for him. Because, you see, we have to question a two-party system. They dangle out the Democratic carrot. They dangle out the Republican carrot. Oh, no, they, tr- they, they, they trot out all of these others. But you know you only get two carrots to pick from. Two carrots every four years. But it's the all-seeing eye above the triangle that is truly pulling the strings. Let's talk about pulling the strings for a minute. Because Bush stated that he saw the first plane hit 
from a TV screen prior to entering the children's classroom. Remember he was in a children's classroom? The problem with that is that the French filmographer Jules Nasde didn't make his film footage of the first plane hitting the building available until 9.12. So, A, Bush lied, or B, he did in fact see the plane, the first plane hit via a TV screen. But then... If that's true, the only possible footage available would have been the secret footage captured via live video feed from the five dancing Israelis who confessed on national TV that their purpose of being there was to document the event. So which was it? But this is where it gets really weird. You know when George Bush was in that classroom? The media reports that George Bush was was reading from a book, and I believe it was called My Pet Goat. Did anyone hear about that? But that's actually not quite true. Because at the actual time of the plane, the first plane hitting the World Trade Center, he was in a classroom full of children, and it's on film. And they were having reading lessons by the teacher. There were five words that they were learning that were being taught in consecutive order. Five words. Do you want to know what those five words that were being taught to school children that Bush was sitting down witnessing at the very time that the first plane hit? Kite, hit, steal, plane, must. Kite, hit, steal, plane, must. Ten seconds later, Bush's aide comes in and whispers in his ear, America is under attack. What is a kite? It's a plane that is controlled by strings. It's puppeteered. So let's get this right. A plane controlled by strings must hit steel. Is being read at the very... Are you... Do you... They are mocking us. Do you not see that? The new world order is mocking you. Mocking you in your face. And you sit back and take it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of the lies. It's called righteous indignation. Unless you're a lapdog, you should be sick of it too. This is America. This is the land of the free, home of the brave. Supposedly, supposedly, later the media reported Bush in the classroom and the reading of My Pet Goat. But that wasn't until after the planes hit. So the question is, why didn't the media report what was actually being read 
at the time the planes were hit. Why did they report that he was in the classroom reading My Pet Goat, which didn't happen till later, when actually what was being read was kind of, at best, a coincidence, wasn't it? A kite must fly in and hit a steel building. A plane controlled by strings, puppeteered, must hit steel. Insane. What about that plane that hit the buildings? In fact, Rabbi Dolph Zachheim was the CEO at the time of System Planning Corporation, SPC. It was a defense company investing in electronic warfare systems, including remote aircraft systems, flight termination systems specifically. He was appointed to the Pentagon as comptroller where they lost $2.3 trillion. And guess what office that plane hit at the Pentagon? The very office that was investigating the missing $2.3 trillion. $2.3 trillion. 84 cameras at the Pentagon. I've been there. Not one of those cameras captures a plane flying into the building. 84 cameras. The most heavily guarded building in the world. In the world. More so than the White House. It's got its own defense system. And no footage until the aftermath. And the reporters on the scene testify... There is no plane debris. No plane debris. And what about FEMA? FEMA was set up just south of the World Trade Centers on the evening of the 10th of September. A full operation command post with emergency preparedness readiness. They all came in on 9-10. What's up with that? The evening before. The Pentagon had, like I said, 84 cameras that were confiscated. The Secretary of Defense of the USA declared war on the Pentagon bureaucracy over an alleged $2.3 trillion in unaccounted for funds and expenses. You see, the officers at the Pentagon that were hit, they were the ones that were investigating the missing trillions. The missing trillions. You see, we can't look to Israel for truth when they nationally mock Yeshua. They do it openly. And we can't look to Judaism for truth when they teach that chickens and the blood of chickens cover your sin on Yom Kippur. We can't look to national Zionism of Israel for truth when they enslave the Jews and call them Palestinians, and bring in the Khazars, which are Turkics, to oppress them. So what is truth? Specifically, if there is any national group that can be tied to 9-11, it is none other than 
the Israelis. Not Muslims, but Israelis. That would stand up in a court of law if anyone would bring it to, but of course, that's not going to happen. You see, we can't look to politicians for truth when they target non-compliant Muslim nations, all the while propping up compliant despot nations like Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is one of the most despicable nations out there. It's crimes against women, humanity and children. Yet we're in bed with Saudi Arabia. Yet other nations that stand up and question the globalists like Libya, they're squashed. Syria... And now Putin is coming to the aid of Syria and with Iran's support. And are we really going to push it to its maximum? Because that could be nuclear devastation. And that's the world that we're living in because these insane psychopaths, they're psychopaths, are running the world. Because they don't care. Because they are looking to bring in order out of chaos. Order out of chaos. And we can't listen to any teachers, Christian or otherwise, unless they're willing to stand up and speak the truth about the facts on public record documenting the ethnic and national status of the people detained, questioned, financially invested, and disseminating the conflicted information on 9-11. They are none other than Israelis. That's a documented truth. And if you're not willing to say that, then I'm not willing to listen to anything that you have to say. And I'm certainly not going to vote for you. And you shouldn't sit under anyone's teaching that isn't willing to come out and say that. Because if they're not willing to tell the truth on that and it's documented, they're not going to tell you the truth about this. They'll have you swinging chickens and telling you that the traditions of men are the commandments of Yahweh. And it's simply not true. The fact is, those that were involved, documented and proven, were all modern-day Israelis, Jews, not Saudis, not Muslims. They lobby and influence U.S. policy and are, as we speak, lobbying us to start war in Syria. Against Russia and against Iran. On behalf of who? Israel. And where ultimately is the anti-Messiah going to stand? In New York City? At the UN building? No. Up on the Herodian fortress, up on the Temple Mount in Israel. You see, and it's all moving towards that. But let's get to the truth about what this day is, Yom Kippur. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 32. It shall be to you a Shabbat Shabbaton, and you shall afflict your beings on the ninth day of the month that evening... From evening to evening shall you celebrate your Shabbat. We're going to be looking at this Hebrew word, afflict. And if you were having a Strong's Concordance, this number would be 6031. We're going to look at this Hebrew word for afflict. Now, Yom Kippur is one of the seven feasts and festivals of Yahweh. It's a moed. Moed, it means what? It means it's an appointed time or a fixed day, or it's a festival, or a feast day. It comes from the root word ya'ad, which means to appoint. And it is associated with the root word anah. 
Now, by understanding this word, we're going to be able to see what this day, Moed, is all truly about. It means to be what? To be betrothed and to be wedded in a joyous occasion at a set apart time for Yahweh. That's what it means. So if this is one of the seven high feast days of Yahweh, how is fasting having a feast? Right? It's a feast day. So how is fasting having a feast? And I'm not against anyone fasting on Yom Kippur. What I'm against is people telling you a tradition is a commandment. You do what you want on Yom Kippur as as long as it's Kadosh and unto Yahweh. Eat, you don't want to eat, drink, you don't want to drink. But just do it unto Yahweh and know why you're doing it. And then don't tell the brethren that the traditions of men are the commandments of Yahweh. Because that's where I have to say something. You see, the Hebrew word anah, it means to humble oneself. To answer and to respond. To exclaim or to sing. It doesn't mean to fast. Most of the time it's used in scripture, it means one who answers another, sometimes in the sense of humbling. Turn with me to Exodus, Shemot, chapter 10 and verse 3. And Moshe and Aaron came to Pharaoh and said to him, This says Yahweh Elohim of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Now, Yahweh wasn't asking Pharaoh to stop snacking, was he? He wasn't saying, Hey, Pharaoh... Stop eating. He wasn't. Yahweh was asking Pharaoh to serve, to worship, and submit to his majesty. He wasn't asking Pharaoh to stay away from the pantry for 25 hours. He was asking him to submit to his majesty. Exodus chapter 22 and verse 22, it is written, You shall not afflict any widow. There's that Hebrew word there, anah. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Yahweh commands us not to anar, not to afflict the widow or the orphan. So what does that mean? Does that mean do not fast the widow and the orphan? Is that what it means? Because in Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 23, verse 29, it is written, For any being that shall not be anar afflicted, in that same day shall be cut off from among his people. So, the question you have to ask, is Yahweh commanding us not to fast the widows and the orphans? In Exodus 22, verse 22. But then turning around in Leviticus 23, 29, and telling us that if we don't fast, if, the, if they don't fast, they'll be cut off from among his people? We can't have it both ways. 
And Yahweh doesn't contradict himself. So either it means fasting and the widows and the orphans are deliberately screwed once a year or it doesn't mean fast and they're safe and protected. But what is it? Because it says in Exodus 22, verse 22, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Don't afflict them. Don't fast them if you want to interpret it that way. But then later on, Yahweh saying, for any being that shall not fast in that same day shall be cut off from his people. Well, which is it? It cannot mean fast. It must mean something else. You see, to fast and to be humbled or afflicted are in fact two different things. Turn to Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 58 verse 1. Let's find out what fasting is all about. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a shofar, and show my people their transgression, and beat Yaakov, the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me daily, and delight to know my halachot, my ways, as a nation that did zedachah, righteousness, and forsook not the ordinances of their Elohim. They ask from me the ordinance of mishpat, judgment. They take delight in approaching their Elohim. Verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, and yet you do not see? Why have we afflicted our being and you keep no notice? See, in the day of your fast, you do your own pleasure. While keeping your laborers working hard, see, you fast, the Hebrew word here is tosum. See, your fasts, tosum, lead to strife and contention and to hitting with a violent blows. Fasting on a day like today will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to mortify himself? Is the object to you to hang your head down like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under yourself? Is that what it's about? Will you call this a fast, an acceptable day to Yahweh? Rather, is not this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the chains of wickedness. To untie the heavy burdens. And to let the oppressed, let the oppressed go free. And to break off every yoke. What is Yom Kippur all about? What is it about? Come to me, all of you. Come to me, all of you that are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. For my yoke is light, saith the master. It is easy. Look at verse 7. Is it not to distribute your lechem, your bread, to the hungry? Is it not about giving bread to the hungry? That's what the fast is all about. To eat or not to eat. That is not the question anymore. It's something deeper than that. 
And to bring the poor that are cast out of your house? And when you see the naked that you cover him, and that you fulfill your duties with your mishpocha, your family. So what is Yom Kippur truly about? It's about inviting friends around your house for warmth, for shelter, for comfort, and for a feast. That's the true fast of Yahweh. Look at verse 8. Then shall your, your light break forth as the morning, and your health shall spring forth speedily. And your Zedekah righteousness shall go before you. And the Tifereth, the glory of Yahweh, shall be your reward. Then shall you call, and Yahweh shall answer. And you shall cry, and he shall say, Hineni, here I am. If you take away from your midst the yoke, the finger-pointing, and the speaking of unrighteousness... And if you extend your lev, your heart to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted being, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your darkness shall become as the noonday. And Yahweh shall guide you continually, and satisfy your being in drought, and make fat your bones, and you shall be like a watered garden, and like a spring of Maim water, whose mind water fails not. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, Devarim 8, 3, it says, And he humbled, the Hebrew word there again, anah, and he humbled you and allowed you to hunger, and he fed you with manna. He fed you with manna, which you knew not. Neither did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of Yahweh does man live. Familiar text, is it not? So let's look at that text. To be humbled is different and separate from being hungry. In fact, part of the humbling process for Israel was being made to eat manna. Part of them being humbled was actually eating. Part of their humbling process was to eat manna. The act of humbling herein is associated and connected with eating, not fasting. It's the very opposite of what religion teaches you. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your avo fathers knew not, that he might humble anar you, that he might test you to do you good at your latter end. So true humbling is connected with what? Eating manna. Woe! For I am the bread of life. I am the pure manna that came down from the Shamayim. You shall eat my flesh and you shall drink my dam. That is the true fast of Yahweh of humbling. Because again, to be humbled is to eat manna. 
The only people on the planet, the only people on the planet that can ever keep Yom Kippur properly, listen, thus fulfilling its old type and shadow are the ones that feast upon the manna. They're the only ones. It's only when you feast upon the manna that you're truly keeping Yom Kippur. It truly is. I know. I used to go without food. Not a drop of food would touch my mouth. Not a drop of liquid. I wouldn't even brush my teeth. As gross as that sounds. Not a drop of liquid, not a drop of food for 72 hours. The two days prior and Yom Kippur in my full religious devotion. But I wasn't where I should be with Yeshua. I wasn't where I should be with Yahweh. I was trying to do it myself. And it is only now by being humbled by Yahweh showing me my pride, my arrogance and being humbled, that I reconnected with my first love these past years and said it's all about Yeshua. That is what true humbleness is. And then being Yeshua to the poor, the weak, and those out there in the nations by extending your arm like Yeshua would and bringing them in and clothing them, keeping them warm, and giving them a feast. Those of a different social economic status than you and I. Why do they feast on the manna? Because they were humbled, recognizing their sin, and they eat the flesh and blood of the manna Messiah. Those are the ones that keep Yom Kippur truly. In John six thirty five, it is written Yeshua said to them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat and were dead. But he that eateth of this bread shall live forever. You see, to say that anah humbling is to fast. Is to deny the scriptural record. It's to deny the Gospels. It's to deny the book of Hebrews and the Messiah of manner himself. We're commanded, in fact, to feast, not to fast. We're commanded to eat. All those who fast are moving, not in the presence of the bridegroom, but in the presence of what? The religious traditions of men. And there's nothing wrong with fasting. But if you think it's the commandment of Yahweh on this day. Then you're moving away from the bridegroom. And drawing near to what? Rabbinicalism. In Mark chapter 2 verse 19. Yeshua said unto them. Can the children of the bride chamber fast? While the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them. They cannot fast, so you have to ask the question. Is Yeshua with you today? Is he truly with you on Yom Kippur? How you answer that will determine your actions towards food and drink, and possibly even chickens on this day. Who knows? If he's not with us, then we're still inside the gate. 
partaking of the animal sacrifices and the Levitical hierarchy. We're serving the old tabernacle. And then we have no part in the true feast of Yom Kippur. Because we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serveth the tabernacle. Hebrews 13.10 If you want to fast at another time of the year, look to the Hebrew word tosum. It's Strong's number 6684. And that word does actually mean to fast. Of course, this word isn't found in the Torah. It's not found in the Torah at all. It's not found until David fasted. And was David what? A shadow of Mashiach. So if we've got a specific Hebrew word in the Tanakh that's dedicated to abstaining from food, it's the Hebrew word tasum. Then why didn't Yahweh use it in the Torah if he wanted us to fast on Yom Kippur? Why didn't he use it in the Torah? It's not even in the Torah. The Hebrew word tasum means to fast. This is the pure and undefiled Yom Kippur. Is Matthew chapter 25, excuse me, verse 34. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and caring for the sick, and visiting those falsely imprisoned. Yeah, even those that were thrown down in Gitmo because of this war on terror. How about visiting some of those? How about next time you go to Israel visiting Gaza? How about visiting some of those imprisoned people? Huh? How are you cut off from among his people? How are you cut off from among his people? By raiding the refrigerator or because you neglected to serve your fellow man who was at a socioeconomic level below you? Which is it? Because you raided the refrigerator or on Yom Kippur, you're cut off from Yahweh's people? Or because you neglected your fellow man? The answer is clear. You see, there's not one passage in the whole of the Bible that commands you to fast on Yom Kippur. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Into the Kadam HaKedoshim, the Holy of Holies, went the Kohen Haggadol, the high priest, once every year, with dam, with blood, that he offered for himself and for the sins of the people. The Ruach HaKodesh, therefore signifying that the way into the Makom Kadosh, holy place, it was not yet made manifest for believers. They didn't know what you know today. While the first tent of meeting was, was significant, that first tent of meeting, it was only symbolic. It was symbolic for the time now present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make the one that did the service perfect regarding his conscience, which stood only in the food offerings and the drink offerings and different washings. A carnal commandments that were imposed on the Kohanim, the priests, until the time of Reformation. But Mashiach has now become a Kohen Haggadah, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tent of meeting. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, neither by the dam, blood of goats and calves, but by his own dam, blood, he entered 
in once into the Kadosh HaKadoshim, Holy of Holies, having obtained eternal thanks for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a red heifer sprinkling the defiled sets apart the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Moshiach, who through the eternal Ruach offered himself without blemish to a lower. Therefore, it's time for us to do what? To purify our conscience from dead works and to serve the living Elohim. In this same chapter, he describes the holy place as being heaven itself where Yahweh dwells. Messiah is now presently at the right hand of Yahweh and continually makes intercession for us because Yeshua has restored the covenant. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10, Jeremiah 31 verse 30. I will put my laws in their minds and write them upon their levim, their hearts. I will be their Eloa and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's Yom Kippur. The choice, it's now left to each of us. Should we follow after sacrifices no longer prescribed by Yahweh? Or should we follow Yeshua HaMashiach, the eternal Yom Kippur Lamb, the Malkitzadik High Priest, and the Manna Moshiach? I think it's clear. Yom Kippur is distinctly different to me each and every year, and I praise Yahweh for that. But what is truth? We have to really look at this religious, political, and financial world we live in. And Yom Kippur is a time for us to take stock. Because we're coming into the Feast of Sukkot, which is a preparation time for our exile and when we may have to flee into the wilderness. And I pray that we are prepared. We are prepared for the times ahead. And we really now use today to be contrite and to be kadosh holy, but not take the traditions of men and say that they're the commandments of Yahweh. And I'm not here to judge anybody on how and what you do on Yom Kippur. As long as it is Kadosh, holy, and it is unto Yahweh, you have to make those decisions yourself. And for me, each and every year, I learn more and I adjust and change. And I pray next Yom Kippur, I will be doing things differently than I have done this Yom Kippur. Because that, to me, is spiritual growth and the true enlightenment, not from the Illuminati, but from heaven. Amen? We have any questions, comments, Brother John? No, wonderful. Wonderful. Moshe, you have questions, comments? No? Are you sure? Okay, good. Blessings.